I think the Body Papers is a good example of what Matthew Arnold meant by seeing life steadily and seeing it whole. Steadily in that, in the same clear, uncomplicated voice, Grace recounts events that are by turns horrifying, poignant, painful, and funny. The intensely personal and the broadly cultural. Whole in that she never takes the easy way out. The casually hurtful remark of a friend is that of a friend with all that entails. Perpetrators of the most deeply wounding events are people who come from their own complex worlds. This is, in short, a work of great intelligence and great humanity, and I recommend it to you. Now, without further mansplaining, Grace Toulouse. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, for that generous introduction. Thank you to the Athenaeum and all who made today possible, to Victoria, to Harvard Bookstore, who's selling my book, and Elaine for um, being in conversation with me later. I'm really honored to speak here today as part of this series, Women, Agency, and the Meaning of Home. And I thought I would focus my reading today on um, reading things related to that, that topic. Um, especially highlighting um, what it means for women to tell their own stories. So I'm going to read a bit about my mother and my grandmother. My mother's actually here, which is kind of nice, to, and I don't usually read this um, in public, but I'll, I'll read this section. This is from a section called Carriers. When I was 15, my maternal grandmother, Mama Lola, threatened to cut her breasts off with a steak knife. She was visiting from the Philippines and had been constantly bickering with my mother since she'd arrived. One day the fight exploded, leading to Mama Lola standing in the kitchen, the top of her house dress unbuttoned, with a steak knife pressed against the flat spot between her long deflated breasts. I fed you from these mammary glands, I sacrificed everything for my nine children, and this is how you talk to me, she said to my mother. My mother looked up briefly, sighed, and went back to wiping rice from the placemats. Enough, Ma, my mother said. She brought a stack of the lunch dishes to the kitchen sink. Mama Lola followed her like a nipping puppy and said, I will cut these off. They are useless now like me. My mother dropped the dishes noisily into the sink and in a, in a voice I've never heard her use since then, screamed, get out of here. By this point in her life, my mother was tired of parents and grandparents. She had been in America long enough to form an identity that was separate from her mother. She found her voice and it was angry. Filial piety was cast aside. My mother would choose her children's well-being over anyone else's feelings again and again. These were the years my mother permed her hair, and even her curls seemed to express rage. 
When we returned later that night, my grandmother was gone. I visited with my grandmother a few times before she died in the Philippines, but Mama Lola was never allowed in our house again. I have often wondered why my grandmother chose her breasts as the body part to threaten to slice off. Why not poke out an eye or chop off a hand or maybe an ear like Van Gogh? During those years, my mother was in constant motion, cleaning, shopping, cooking, driving, and managing everyone else's lives. Back in the Philippines, there were people who did those things for her, every little thing. She grew up attending the country's most elite private schools, accompanied by her yaya, who tied her shoes, carried her book bag, and waited outside her classroom until it was time for my mother to, give, to have her lunch. After school, my mother would send an errand boy to the park, about a mile away, to fetch her a small cone of peanuts fried with thin slices of garlic. It would have been more efficient for him to buy a bag that would last the week, but my mother preferred her snack, freshly fried and warm. My mother told this story recently to her nine-year-old grandson. The boy who fetched me warm peanuts every day was your age, she said. He kind of looked like you. Shouldn't he have been in school, I asked. My mother said that her parents sent the younger household helpers to school, even college courses. Really, I asked skeptically, and why would they do that? My mother said that her family treated their helpers differently than most other families in their class, not the wealthiest old money class, but in the higher income bracket for sure. Her ancestors had been landowners and grew sugar and rice, but this wealth was largely gone by her generation. Her father worked for a living as a police detective, and her mother was a teacher, but they received some financial help from elderly great-aunts in the province that elevated their class status. Evan, I said, when your grandmother was your age, she was a spoiled, rich brat. She had a hard time when she first came to the States. I cried every day, my mother said. It was hell. She had never washed a dish or a piece of clothing before. She did not know about laundry machines and for the first few months washed our family's clothes in a bucket. My, brother, my father bought rope to hang a line through the living room to dry the clothes. My hands were cut up from scrubbing your clothes so hard, she said. My knees and shoulders have never recovered because after you kids went to sleep, I would get on my hands and knees and scrub the floors clean. Well, why didn't anyone tell you about washing machines and dryers, I asked. Didn't you have friends? I knew nothing, my mother said. My father taught her, the same way he taught all of us children, how to make rice the Filipino way and how to wash the rice and measure the water by swirling the grains until they were level and marking the spot with your thumb. She practiced recipes from cookbooks and eventually did make friends with other Filipinas who shared their recipes. I was, was miserable and didn't know how to do anything domestic, but there was something in me that wanted to fight, my mother said. I wanted to prove that I could make it on my own in the States. Okay, so I'll read from um, 
a section from the afterword. I never set out to write a memoir. I never considered myself a subject worth writing about. So I wrote fiction populated by the sorts of characters I observed in my life in a homogeneous New England town and who were also reflected in the movies, TV shows, plays, and books that I consumed constantly. In other words, I wrote about white people who in my mind were the only kinds of people one could write about. I would brace myself whenever an Asian figure appeared on screen or on the page because it meant contending with caricatured depictions that would attach themselves to me like a ghost or a bad stench. No matter their gender or ethnicity or time period, that character became a part of me, not only in my idea of myself, but in how people understood me and treated me. Long Duck Dong, wartime prostitutes, wise karate masters, model minorities, dragon ladies, physicians, the list of my torments are long. I was a voracious reader throughout childhood, and yet it wasn't until thousands of books later in my reading life, when I was about to graduate high school, that I encountered Maxine Hong Kingston's The Woman Warrior and Amy Tan's Joy Luck Club. There I was, finally, not as a side character in service to protagonists or as a joke, but as a consciousness allowed all its complexity and humanity. I was not a caricature or a stereotype or a racist fantasy of the Asian or the so-called Oriental. As rich as my reading diet was, my imagination had been curtailed, and I didn't even realize my, the, how profound my absence was and invisibility was from literature until I finally saw myself appear. Maxine Hong Kingston led me to Amy Tan, who led me to Jessica Hagedorn and others. I read intentionally from then on, and I felt a space open up for what was possible in writing and storytelling. Read a little bit from the end of the new afterword. So about a year ago, I was launching the hardcover version of this book, and I didn't expect it to happen, but I got really sick, and I think I got really freaked out. Um, from doing it. So I'll, I'll read a little bit of what that experience was like. I got pneumonia and I had um, a fever, a high fever, for about a week before I was able to get treatment. During those fever dreams, my low oxygen mind felt certain that there was not a world where both me and my book could exist. I know how dramatic that sounds, but I thought I would die before my publication date. I imagined the air in my lungs displacing with fluid as I silently, slowly drowned in plain view. This would be my punishment for telling my story. And yet, I didn't die. What did die was the version of me that was willing to protect those who did not deserve protection. What left me was any desire to smile and hide how furious I am about what had been allowed to happen to me. This is a fact that will haunt me for the rest of my life. Before I was even born, there were people who could have stopped the runaway train racing toward me and pulled me out from under its wheels before they flattened me against the rails over and over. And yet those people did nothing. 
Secondhand, I've heard the appalling things that some people have said about me and my decision to publish this book, which I will not repeat here, except to answer their questions definitively. No, I did not want it. And as an adult woman, no one, not even my father, has the power to allow or forbid me to do anything, much less share the truth of my own life. At Porter Square Books in Cambridge, the novelist Jenna Bloom introduced me at my book launch with, with this quote by Muriel Reichheiser. What would happen if one woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open. Once my stories were out there, I could not unsplit the world. I had always been afraid of this rupture, but once I could not contain it, I walked into a new world where I did not have to hide the truth of my life. I did not want to carry the shame for someone else's crime. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Okay, great. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I'm a Farm Brewster, as Tom said, and I just wanted to briefly explain how I ended up in this position. Um, I met Grace just a year ago at um, the Muse, the Grub Street Writing Conference on the occasion of the publication of the hardcover. And I promptly read the book and invited her to come to my university and speak with my students who were very, very empowered by the book. So I just want to thank Grace for inviting me to come on the occasion of the paperback publication of this book, um, an event that I'm sure blows your mind every day. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I'm just going to diverge from my script for a moment because I was noticing Grace's large sticker that says, I voted. And I couldn't help but recall in the book all the papers um, that have to do with your journey from the Philippines to the United States as a child, and even a paper that says something on it, deportable alien, is that correct? So I just wanted to start you know, noticing the sticker. How did it feel for you to vote? And... How does it feel today to be an American citizen? Um, well, I know like, when I walked over here from the car, I walked by the state house, and I just felt really proud. Actually, there were people like encouraging others, and they asked me if I voted, and I was like, see my sticker? Yeah, I voted. <laughs> um, so I, uh, you know, I feel really lucky. There was a time of my life when I was aware that I didn't have access to certain um, rights and activities that U.S. citizens have access to, and I felt really alone, actually, and kind of um, abandoned in a way because I wasn't sure which country would stick up for me or who in the government would have my back if something happened. And so for me, when I got my U.S. citizenship, um, it was really 
a beautiful day. My friend made me like this red, white, and blue um, cake, and um, it was a really moving experience to be with hundreds of other people who have chosen this country as the place where they want to contribute, and they want to put their efforts and energy and resources towards building something. Um, and that really moved me, and it moves me to think, like, well, I want to do that, too. Like, this is my country, and I know that this country has problems. We have a lot of things to work out, but this is where I want to devote my energies and resources towards making things better. And so, you know, voting is just one um, piece of civic life, and... You know, I, I know that we, we meant to, my husband and I meant to vote early, but then time got away from us. And even this morning, he was kind of rushing to get to work. And I said, like, no, 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 we have to. Like, it'll really take us five minutes. Like, we, this is like, we can't even, it's the least we can do. We have to do it. Um, and so um, I love it. I, I feel like it's my right to vote, and I will definitely exercise that right. That's great. Um, so now just backing up to the uh, launch today, um, I wanted you to just tell us about this journey, you know, that you even saw publication of your memoir a year ago, um, that you are now um, a sought-after speaker, that the memoir has received tremendous praise nationally and internationally, and now um, we're celebrating the paperback edition. And I wanted to hear you speak on how this feels and if you ever thought that this what happened when you were starting out in your journey as a youngster? Um, I mean, even just going back to a year ago where I wasn't sure what the reception would be, I mean, there's a few options. There's totally, you know, people ignoring it and having no reception at all, no reviews, no conversation, no invitations to come visit people's colleges and, and do readings. That definitely happens. I mean, it's like there's a ton of, it's a crowded field. There's a lot vying for everyone's attention. Reading culture, I think, it seems to be, have shrunk a little bit. I don't know, I'm just saying that out of nowhere, but people seem to be talking more about TV shows and, and movies as opposed to talking about books. And I have seen that shift in my life. So I just thought, well, I have a few options, like totally ignored and invisible, and it's like basically like a blip of nothing. Like I publish it and then nothing happens. Um, or I was also afraid of being the brunt of some sort of attack and people deciding they didn't like the book. And I was already, like, trying to get myself ready for, like, how am I going to respond if somehow I become the center of some sort of, um, you know, people, I don't know, attack of some sort. So, and so all of those kinds of preoccupations didn't prepare me for the other possibility, which was a positive possibility, which is that people would receive it in the way that I had dreamed of. Mm -hmm. And that little part of me that's able to think about positive outcomes my my hope and dream for the book was that it would be the kind of book that people really connected with and wanted to like um, lend to somebody else and like put the book in somebody's hands or say like oh you have to read this that's exactly like that's what I wanted um, I didn't you know my father had I write about this in the afterword or the back of the book where my father had these like expectations um, where I mean they're un 
he's been he's done this since I was a child where there's like kind of unrealistic expectations it's wonderful that he has high dreams for me but it's like he was teaching me to swim and then he's like okay like he's talking about the Olympics already and it's like dad like you don't, first of all you don't even swim you learn to swim from a book and you're teaching me like this is not I'm probably not going to go to the Olympics but he was thinking he's like oh yeah like so when is it going to be on the New York Times bestseller list I'm like dad please like I like it's not that's not an expect, please don't have that expectation. So, um, but I think, you know, I've, and, and for a larger, um, what's happened is that I've, I've had to sit with the positivity and learn how to take in, um, like all the love that I feel. Um, I mean, I, I probably get like a moving note every day. So, and I didn't, I really didn't expect that. And I think when you put something out in the world, it is really, um, gratifying to have something come back, even if I didn't have that expectation. Yes, on that note, um, I believe I read in the new afterward that um, you wrote about this feeling of being a published author and how it, I believe, I might be paraphrasing incorrectly, but that you felt like you were landing, you had landed in a new country with a new identity. Um, so I was wondering if you could just speak about that new identity, a little bit about now that you are a published author, how do you feel? Um. Great! Like it's awesome. Oh what yeah, can I, Lisa, yeah, she actually said in my class that it felt like it was your birthday every day. Yeah, it yeah, does. That's right. It does that's feel right. like my birthday every day. <laughs> that's amazing. And I know, like I know, uh, you know. I mean, we've just I, I watch and like read things that go on in publishing, and I know that's not everybody's experience. So I feel really lucky. Um, but I mean, I think I experienced the world as a series of border crossings because of my initial experience as a two-year-old going from one reality in the Philippines to a completely different reality in the United States. Like, I know that your world can change dramatically. The whole structure, framework, belief system, family system. Like, I lived amongst dozens of relatives. We all lived together in a compound. We had multiple generations, multiple layers of people who loved me and were caring for me. And then we come here and life is completely different. I'm, we're living in a small apartment in um, Mattapan and it's just my mother and my father and my sister. So I, that's how I experience life is as a border crossing. And this experience of publishing this book, like I've, I've been dreaming of being a writer, a published author since I was a kid. And at various times I've given up on the idea even like after graduate school, I got an MFA and I kind of like gave up. I'm like, well, I tried and like nobody there, I have all this feedback about why my book isn't, you know, why I can't sell my work. And so I just kind of gave up and I really didn't, I mean, I would go to plenty of readings like this and I just could never imagine myself on this end of things. Um, and it's, so that was a huge identity shift to, realize like, okay, you are going to get the thing that you wanted most in your life. And, you know, it didn't have, it was the kind of thing that I could do all of my work and there still needed to be somebody on the other end to take me the rest of the way. Of course you can self-publish, but that's not what my, where my goals were at. Like I wanted, I wanted the, um, uh, like a traditional publisher to take it, to be part of my team, um, to help me. So, you know, having that door open and to allow me to walk through it was a huge um, shift in my life. And, you know, told me also, it, it showed me that, like, things that you don't expect can happen really can. Like, even if I wasn't, if I couldn't dream that big, um, there are things that are there even if you don't expect them. 
So on that note, um, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how your journey went. You, I, uh, you graduated from Tufts University, and then was it directly afterwards that you went to California for your MFA? And then what happened between the MFA and the book? Were you writing nonfiction? Were you writing journalism? Had you always planned to write this memoir? Sure. So I... Um I was a senior at Tufts University. It was second semester. It was probably this time, around this time of the year, and I was a senior. I had done all the pre-med requirements. I didn't do well at them. I was like, okay. Um, and everyone in my life was a physician. Like, all my, my parents are physicians, all their friends. Like, I actually didn't know you could do anything else but be a physician. So that's what the track I was on. And I... Um, a professor said to me, he said, you know, you're really good at writing. Like, why don't you consider writing um, as a, you know, something that you do in your life? And I was like, oh, I didn't know that you couldn't do that. How, do, how does one do that? Um, and so he's like, oh, go work. He's like, go get a job for a couple of years and then, you know, get some experience and just write and take classes and have a group. And so um, I called my parents to campus, I, and I'm sure I scared them. I'm like, I need you to come here right away. I have to talk to you about something. And they're like, okay. And so they got in the car. They drove through like rush hour traffic from south of Boston to north of Boston to Tufts University where I was at. And I remember standing with them on the sidewalk and they looked so concerned and worried. And maybe they thought I was going to tell them that I was sick or that maybe I was pregnant. I don't know. Um, but I was just like, oh, um, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. And they were like, it's fine. Why did you make us drive through traffic rush hour to get here and like, yeah, do whatever you want. It's fine. And, but somehow I had gotten the idea in my head that I had to be a doctor. Like they weren't explicitly telling me what to do, but I had that notion from probably various, you know, places that that's like what one should do. Um, and so from there, um, I did go work. I worked at Houghton Mifflin for a couple of years as a editorial assistant, a production coordinator. Um, and then I was getting like really stifled in the, I just was like, ah, oh, this cubicle life, like this nine to five thing, like I don't like it, I feel really stifled. And then another teacher, just offhand, he was leaving class, I took his writing class at Harvard Extension School, and offhand he's like, you know, you're really good, like you might apply to graduate school. And I was like, wait, there's graduate school for writing? Like what is that? And I said, oh no, you know, I can't do that, like I don't have any money. And then he said, no, 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 he's like, the best students will get full funding. And so that brief, like those two brief conversations really got me here. Like he, it was offhand for him, but for me, I, then I looked into it and I was like, oh yeah, there's places that give you full funding. And so I applied and I was very ignorant. I just only applied to things in California because I wanted to try some, a new state. And, you know, this person called me and around this time of year and said, um, that I, you know, he called me, left a message, and I called back, and I'd never heard of him. He's a famous writer, but but I was so ignorant, I hadn't heard of him. And his wife is like, oh, do you mean so-and-so? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's who that is. And he told me I got in, and it was full funding, and, um, you know, it was, a, it was, that was my MFA program. And then everything from there, it was all like, it's not coincidence, but 
there was an opportunity and then I seized it. I happened to go to a book event when I was graduating from my MFA program and I met someone there and he's like, oh, you're graduating from an MFA program. I got a job for you. Can, you want to apply? And I was like, and inside I was like, no, I can't be a professor in an MFA program. But there's another part of me that's like, yeah, I need to make money. I need a job. So I applied and, and got it. But I've tried to be aware of when these opportunities present themselves. And even if I don't feel ready, I just try to like, all right, I'm going to, I don't, I definitely don't feel ready, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to like take that step forward and just see what happens, even if I definitely don't feel ready. Um, and that's, that's what happened there. And there was ups and downs, of course, where I had lost, um, I, I despaired at times about my ability to publish. I was always writing no matter what. Um, and eventually, you know, after 20 years of, of being at it, what was my scene, what was my MFA thesis, um, which was fiction, um, ended up being the seed for this book. Like there are paragraphs from my MFA thesis that I've just lifted paragraph for paragraph and put it into my memoir because that was a novel that was loosely autobiographical and based on my family, my extended family. And so this became pieces of, of that novel as well as pieces I published um, for Boston Magazine when I was working freelancing there and other places. Um, you know, even that job, I, when I was, when the editor asked me to come write for them, I was like, oh, no way. But I just tried. I mean, that's fascinating. So you're saying that, um, parts of this book started out as in a, in a novel and a work of fiction. Yeah. So was that your original intention? Yes. You did not have the intention to write a memoir. Absolutely. I did not want to be the person that went out and said, this is what happened to me. Okay. I wanted to have the veil of fiction so that if I felt like it, I could just say it's fiction and I could always have that as an out because, but you know, it is, I mean, all that stuff I was writing in the novel, it's some of it's imagined, but it's all based on true things right. that happened. So what led you to have the courage to turn it into a memoir? And I was curious if, if any of that had to do with the cultural climate around 2016 and thereafter. Was the timing helpful in terms of bringing this memoir to fruition? Yes. I mean, I think it's exactly that moment because I won the Restless Books Prize in 2017. So the Me Too movement and the conversation was happening in 2016. That's when I was deciding to, to enter the contest. So I think I just felt more comfortable. I felt like, well, there's all these other women, mostly women identified folks who are telling their micro stories on Twitter and actually really coming out and challenging very powerful men and systems. They're doing it like, I'm going to join, I'm going to join them and I don't feel alone anymore. And I, I wanted to join that movement. And, and that's why I felt comfortable, um, writing it and saying like, I am, I am the narrator and the author of this work. Wow. That's amazing. Um, so I also read something interesting where you were, I believe being interviewed by someone and you heard, you heard the word balm, B-A-L-M, that, that writing or that your book could function as a balm or, you know, salve of something gentle and soothing. Um, but what the interviewer meant was that the book could be a bomb, B-O-M-B, -B, as in set off an explosion. So I was really intrigued by those two words around the book and was curious if you could speak to how it has functioned in those ways. 
I think um, that was my publisher, and it was my first time meeting him, and it was we were having lunch together, and I think I just very much wanted to hear, like, we, we all have these experiences, and so we sort of hear what we want to hear, and I wanted to hear that, yeah, this is going to be great, it's going to be easy, and he looked at me very seriously, and he's like, no, a bomb, B-O-M-B, like, he's, and he said, you know, and, and when I thought about it, I thought, oh, yeah, I've known writers, colleagues of mine whose family has sued them for publishing their memoirs or never talked to them again, and, you know, I had to make a decision that I was willing to risk that at this time, and it may sound cold and crass, but I was. I just thought, well, you know, if people don't like me anymore or if they abandon me, that's going to have to be what it is because I'm really um, doing this. I want to tell this story for the next generation. Like, I'm thinking of my the next generation in my family, and I want to warn them, and I want to be honest with them. Like, I love them, and like, I want, I don't, and my students too, like, I don't want to lie to them about what things are like, and I also want to show them that, like, you can survive a lot. There's, you have to, you know, take steps to do that, but horrible things can happen to you for, and for me it was seven years, and there is a life after that. It doesn't mean that your life is over, which some people have told me that they thought, like, oh, if something happened to them, their life would be over. And like, no, it's going to be hard, but you can still, like, reclaim your life and have a life. And in a way, it's a very radical thing to live a happy life. It's like the best, my therapist says this, the best revenge is a good life. And I do think about that as, like, a, a mantra of sorts because you know, I do want to enjoy my life. Someone tried to take it away from me. And it is like a positive thing for me to say like, no, I'm going to do the things I want to do. And, um, you know, and some people, I haven't heard from all my relatives. Um, some people have just ignored me. Some people I've heard back that they're angry at me. I, I was like a relative had said that thing in the back, which I responded to. So, you know, that hurts, but it's, it, it's just, it's bearable. It's not, I'm not going to take care of those relatives anymore. Uh, that being said, you, you wrote about your family having a, quote, genetic code to deny and dismiss. Uh, so I was wondering how your parents specifically felt once the book came out and then what your relationship with them is like today. Yeah. Well, I've been really lucky in that both my parents, since the time, the book is not totally about trauma. I want to say that the book is like about sort of things I can't talk about, but as I was coming here today, I think this also is a book about love, mm -hmm. um, in, in comp how complicated love can be. Um, but anyways, the, one of the, if you haven't read the book, one of the stories I tell is that, um, my grandfather, um, abused me, sexually abused me for seven years. And it was known, we only found this out like last year after my book came out, but people knew this about him, actually. Um, you know, children had spoken up to their parents before I was born and nobody did anything. Everyone kept that secret and protected him, the, the patriarch. And so my parents didn't know, but when I told my parents what happened to me when I was 15, from that very day, they very much chose me and chose our family. Um, and, you know, other people would challenge them and they didn't, my, they didn't, they pressured my parents not to choose me, but my parents have always chosen me. So they've told me all along that they support my writing and support me telling this story. Um, and, you know, they, 
my mother is here. Like she comes with me to like, she comes to as many events as possible. She's been like all around the country with me. Um, so I think it speaks to both of my parents' growth that they're able to, you know, they didn't choose to be writers, but they had a kid who's a writer. So, you know, that's a sort of dangerous thing, but you know, they, they've accepted it like they, and they celebrate it. And I think they're also my biggest defenders. Like I, as I was starting, as when the book came out, I started to get these messages from relatives and I, I, you know, talked to my parents right away. I was like, you know, I'm getting these messages from our relatives. I really can't deal with them. It's like totally stressing me out. And they said, don't talk to them. Like, we're going to call them right now. Like, tell them they can't talk to you. Everyone has to go through us. And so they've, they took, you know, steps that, that they could take to, to, um, to protect me. And I think part of this speaks to reconciliation. Sometimes we do things that we regret. We're not aware of things. We get aware later and we deeply regret what we've done. But moving forward, there are ways to reconcile with people. There's ways to ask forgiveness. There's ways not to atone necessarily, but find ways to repair um, damage and repair a relationship. And that's what I see my parents doing. That's great. Um, on that note, I was, and you had mentioned in your reading, uh, the topic of healing and writing as a form of healing. I was wondering if you could just share with us, um, some other activities maybe that helped enable the writing process. Um, and then if you would say that you have by this time now, um, been healed. Um, so part of what I had to do to publish this book was, um, do a lot of like work on myself, um, so that, and, and like have a healing process so that I could be the person out in front with this book. Um, and that was being in community, um, with people in all kinds of ways, writing groups, my work as a teacher, I find very healing as a process, mm -hmm. um, being in therapy, being in therapy groups, I mean, these, all these ways in like, if, if, the kind of experience that I had is one that isolates a person and makes them feel cut off from people. Then the way that I needed to heal was to re-engage with the community of people and not feel shunned, but rather accepted and that there wasn't anything bad about me. Um, and, and I had that over and over again. I put myself into situ situations where people are kind and compassionate and warm and that was healing for me. Um, to be just to sit with people, um, no matter what we were doing. And it's a very simple, free thing to be able to do, um, that I think, you know, to be in people's presence, I, I think is, can be really healing. And so that's, that's what I had to do, um, to write this. And, um, I wrote some of the pages here. Like a friend was a member of the Athenaeum and he invited me to join. And so, um, I would, I think I met him here a couple times and we wrote together. And so there's things like that. Like if you have something that is hard for you, I think having company um, can be helpful. Like having a writing date or writing with people can support you to do that thing that you want to do. Um, and I, and even just today, like I, I have you and Tom, like that support, like you're with me today. And like, like that means something to me. Um, so I know in the interest of time, just, just a couple more quick questions. Um, one to circle back to voting. Um, and considering the hurdles that you and your family experienced, um, first with immigration, then with becoming citizens, um, the abuse, the inherited disease that you write about, um, how would you describe the role of the American dream in your lives? Or would you consider that your family achieved the American dream? 
mean, the American dream is something that I've thought about and like tried to contest in some ways and think about, but by all standards, we achieved it. My parents bought a house, they owned a successful um, business, uh, they got all their kids through um, college and graduate school. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I'm the only one in my family that isn't a doctor of some kind, mm -hmm. um, which, but, you know, like they're, they achieved those sorts of things. And yet there's this like underside as well that we probably don't want to talk about or reveal, which is some of the, the hurdles to it or the ways that we had to, um, be quiet about our suffering and, and things like that. So, you know, I mean, the Philippines has a long relationship with the United States, if you don't already know. We were the first um, U.S. colony, and so we ate food from the United States. We listened to the music. We watched the movies. Um, the relatives in my family, like, when they spoke English, it was like Frank Sinatra. I would look at them and be like, that is so weird coming out of your face. But that's how they, like, like U.S. and the American dream is very much a part of Philippine culture and so this is the place you want to go to and so they they just my parents desired that a long time ago and um, and I do think we were lucky enough to access it despite um, some some challenges like being undocumented for 10 years and and things like that and, and I think what helped is that my parents were professionals and we had a nice town of um, where people were were really even though microaggressions happened like people liked us and they wanted to welcome us and we I became part of the brownies and Girl Scouts and soccer and church like we did all those very American things. I mean that makes a huge difference towards assimilating. Um, so I also just wanted to ask now now that we've celebrated and we are celebrating and you will continue to celebrate the paperback um, and you're going to heave a tremendous sigh of relief no doubt over the coming months. What will you turn to next? What do you think will be your next project? Um, I am just trying to get back to having like a regular writing practice. I think of writing as a relationship with myself mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to get back to that. And so that would be first. And then, um, I have these, like, I have a bunch of novels that I haven't finished yet. I try to dip into there. And, um, one thing that I'm researching, but not ready to write fiction about yet is, um, the fact that. Um, 1,300 um, ref Jewish refugees sought, um, went to the Philippines, um, you know, during um, World War II or before World War II and found a life there. And so I'm, I've been reading about that. I'm very interested in, in how, um, how those refugees made a life in the Philippines. Um, and during World War II, Manila was destroyed, and so the refugees went on to Israel and the United States, but they survived and are very grateful to the Philippines for that time period where they had a life there.